0: Welcome to Lunch and Unlearn. In today's episode, Jess and I discuss the importance of words, both how they can harm and how they can create inclusion, share with you a wonderful resource to talk about racism with the youngest people in our lives, and leave you with two questions to ponder this week. Let's grab some lunch and get ready to unlearn together.
1: In the midst of a pandemic, a black revolution and a white awakening are happening. Diversity, equity, and inclusion educators Brianna Clover and Dr. Jessica Petty create brave spaces for candid conversations on race equity, focusing specifically on its intersection with ableism, sexism, sexual orientation, and gender identity, all from the unique perspective of a black woman and a white woman.
0: I'm Brianna Clover. And I'm Dr. Jessica Petty. In today's episode, we want to share with you our personal observations as we continue to look more critically at the world around us with the intention of removing our own blinders so that we can see how racism and the many other isms manifest itself in
1: our everyday world through language. Bree, I'm so glad we're talking about this topic today. I think it's something that I am Trying to be more aware of in my own life, uh, really thinking about the words that I use and how they impact others. But before we dive in, I'd love to share a little riddle with you and see if you can solve it. Okay, okay? Yeah. so a, a father and a son get into a car crash and are rushed to the hospital. Sadly, the father dies. As the boy is taken to the operating room, the surgeon rushes in and says, "I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. Hmm, Bree, who's the surgeon here? Wait, yeah. <laughs> my mind.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I, I immediately thought, well, the father, but wait, the father is in a
1: car crash. And of course the answer is that the surgeon is the boy's mother. Yeah. Wow. But because we're socialized to so often think of a surgeon as a male. Yes. This is why so- things like this can be hard for us to solve or imagine. And so this is an example of gender bias subconsciously we can't imagine the surgeon as a woman now we do see that younger people tend to solve this a little more easily because they're they've grown up in a world with a larger focus on gender equality but it's a great example of how we all carry bias within us it's our subconscious prejudice mm-hmm. that tells us this is you know this type of job is this type of person and it affects the words that we use so even though i didn't say to you you know male or female surgeon that implicit bias that we all carry, it, it feeds us that information. So despite our best efforts, sometimes our word choices can send the wrong message. And that's why using inclusive language is so vital to understand how we impact others.
0: That's right, Jess. That's a really good example. And I feel like I've heard that before, but even hearing it a second time, I had to stop and think for a second. Inclusive language does not reflect discriminatory or stereotypical views and it doesn't define people by one characteristic or assign them to a group if it isn't relevant to the context. And I can think of another example. It can be offensive to call out a person's gender, race, ethnicity, or other characteristic when it's not relevant to the story. For example, saying a female scientist or an African-American doctor, if those demographics aren't relevant. Uh, and if they reinforce the outdated and offensive notion that it's remarkable for women and or people of color to hold such roles, then likely, you know it's language that we need to like rethink how we frame it up. Mm-hmm. And I can think just in in the case of race, specifically, white people generally don't think of white or their whiteness as a race. It, it, right. When you think about race, you think of it being a black or brown person, you know, like that's race. So with that position, It's thought to, well, the only qualify or the qual I have to qualify if I'm talking about a person of color, I have to qualify as African-American. But if I'm just saying a doctor, then I'm implying a white doctor. It's like this subconscious prejudice that we don't even know we have. And it's it's because we're socialized into that. And so I just think that's really, really interesting when we think of, you know, white is being so normalized, maybe asking ourselves, okay is this important for me to call this out in the context? Or is it just my implicit bias at play here? I think the riddle that you shared earlier is another example uh, that reinforces how powerful language can be. And how even in our unconscious selves, we don't even recognize that sometimes our word choices reflect an implicit bias, or even assumptions that may or not be true. For instance, saying someone suffers from a condition reflects our pity for that person and assumes the person has a reduced quality of life because of his or her condition.
1: I love that one. Yeah. I think that's such a good example because that word suffer, yeah. you know, because it's different from us potentially then we assume they're suffering just because it's different. Yes. And I think that Joe's that that using that word can be so disrespectful to their life experience. Exactly.
0: So let's run through some examples. Jess, I'm going to say a phrase and I'd love for you to make it more inclusive. What do you think about that? Let's see how I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So first exclusionary, able-bodied people.
1: Um, I, I think it's important to center the person first. So I would say people without disabilities. I like that. That's good. That's good. All right. Felon. Mm, don't like that one. Someone <laughs> with a felony. They're a person first. They're not just a felon. You That's a
0: great point. Don't label it That way. Yes. How easily, gosh, some of these I'm like, Ooh, yeah. never thought about that. Uh drug addict someone with a drug addiction it kind of connects to that felon too they're not a drug addict it is yes that's good Um, insane asylum Mm. I would prefer a mental health
1: hospital good schizophrenic Uh, this goes similar to the example with a drug addict you want to center the person first so a person living with schizophrenia oh that's good Uh,
0: Let's try one more wheelchair bound or confined to a wheelchair.
1: Uses a wheelchair might be a better way to put it.
0: Yeah. I like that too.
1: Confined. It's just has a negative connotation to it. Exactly. But using a wheelchair, I mean, maybe they, they are totally fine using a wheelchair that person. So to, to go back to the earlier comment around suffering, Um, We have to be very careful that we don't assume that we know that having a wheelchair is a bad thing. So just they use a wheelchair. Yeah.
0: And it kind of goes back to when I was talking earlier about our positionality and us assuming because we are able-bodied that we just assume able-bodied is normal. And so we just assume that anyone who is not able-bodied is is suffering or is confined. Like we automatically give that negative connotation. Yep. So I know that I need to be more cognizant of that myself. A common thing that I recognize also is in, in just in this back and forth that we just did is that it seems we always need to be cognizant of centering the person first and not to reduce them to a label. Yep. And this gets me thinking about common confusion around race language, such as black versus people of color versus African-American. I think I've heard that a lot, even just in conversations with friends and and former colleagues you know what what is the proper way what is the politically correct way right. you know wh- what should we call people of color so do you mind if we pivot a minute and talk a little bit about that yeah that's great great so first i want to start by saying there's really no correct way and race and racial identity is an ever evolving thing and it's impacted by what's going on in the world around us and it's it's has it's impacted by where we are in our personal journeys, racial identity, but also the identities that others are are putting on us as a result of the times that we're living in. So I thought I first wanted to quote Dr. Greg Carr. He's a Howard University associate professor, and he says that regardless of what we called ourselves, we are going to be grouped together. And he was talking about himself and other people of color. And he says the demographic reality of enslavement and its aftermath, racial oppression, that's just, that's the way it is. But I thought he, he followed that with a really profound statement that African-American people want to be human in the world without restriction. Hmm. And I just thought that was so powerful because what black people want to be called is not the same. It, it is very dependent on their racial identity and their racial identity is impacted by the environment that they grew up in, how others identified them and then how they see themselves. So, I just want to start by saying if you're if you're not sure how to refer to a person who is black, the best thing is just to ask and recognize that names and identities can will continue to evolve throughout history. And I also want to just to maybe before we move on talk a little bit about the history So black was a term that was used as a sense of pride and empowerment during the black power movement in the 60s and 70s. And African-American was an attempt to acknowledge the source of black America's origin. So if you think about African-Americans today are far removed From their African history, if they're living in the United States. And so, African American is a way to connect to our history of how we came over to the United States. And from my personal perspective, as a way to honor my ancestors, who I might not be able to trace all the way back. And that's largely because of slavery and who has power. And Mm -hmm. and if we look even in historical textbooks, you know, those in power you can trace history back a lot easier than those who were not in power. But one thing on people of color I think is important to know is black people are people of color, but not all people of color are black people. That's a great, great distinction. Will you say that one more time? Yes. So black people are people of color, but not all people of color are black people. So if you're talking about a black person you should just talk about that black person. You should recognize their experiences as a black person are going to be different than their experiences of another person of color. So I think just from my personal, I would, I prefer to be called black or African-American, but if you're referring to me alongside other people of color and you're you're ta- referring as a group, okay, that makes sense. But if you're referring to me, I'm not a person of color. I'm a black woman. I'm a black person.
1: Mm-hmm. So does that help a little bit? That's a great distinction. And I think sometimes when people don't know what to say, they avoid conversations. And I think your point about just ask. Yeah. You know, it's okay to ask somebody what identifying words do you want me to use? And this applies to race, Mm -hmm. Um, it applies to gender. I mean, some females do not want to be called a female. They want to be called a woman.
0: Yes. I totally agree. Just ask. And, and I think also be open to it being an ever evolving thing and just our ability to be okay with that, you know, that, and, and to respect that. And it goes back to language again, language is so powerful. And oftentimes if we diminish the power of language, we do it a disservice. So, right. I think we could have another episode here, too, just as we're talking about language, the power of language. I would love eventually to unpack not only language, but symbolism, because it feels especially relevant as we witness around the country uh, demands to remove Confederate statues, which are symbols of white supremacy. And they were erected, a majority of them erected during periods of U.S. history when Black American civil rights were aggressively under attack. And so it just made me think about historical language and how the use of s- historical language today and that we subconsciously use it and don't really understand the power that it has. So I'd love to just talk a little bit about proper language, first proper language when speaking about
1: slavery. There's so many words that I know that I use that I don't even know the origin and how it got into my vocabulary, but they're there. And yes. as I learn more about the origins, sometimes I think, okay, I, I want to consciously remove that word.
0: Exactly. When we know better, we do better, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. (laughs) So
0: I want to reference The Conscious Kid because it's a really great resource um, that I refer to often. And they shared a quote from Dr. Laura Adderley, and she says, All words we know to talk about enslaved people of African descent in these Americas prove insufficient, both for the brutality against them and for their remarkable overcoming. And so I thought I'd just share some language recommendations from Black scholars and scholars of color that help us to describe and analyze the intricacies and occurrences of domination, coercion, resistance, and survival under slavery. And the first one is enslaved as an adjective rather than using slave as a noun. And we do this because it disaggregates the condition of being enslaved with the status of being a slave. I think it's important to remember people weren't slaves. They were enslaved and they were captives of the enslaver. So that's another uh, advice that black scholars and scholars of color say is use instead use people who claimed people as property, those who held people in slavery, rather than referring to enslavers as masters.
1: And I think that goes back to our earlier exercise where we said, it's not that the person is a felon. They are a person with a felony. And I think yeah. that's that's what I'm hearing you say here. As we talk about slavery, we have to be very careful that we are not labeling individuals as slaves. They yeah. are people who were enslaved. Exactly. That's perfect.
0: Another one, too, is um, rather than using stolen labor, using stolen labor knowledge and skills. And I think this one is so important because I think even when we think back in our textbooks and what we're taught, the first introduction to African-Americans is that they were enslaved. Mm -hmm. And we often forget that it wasn't just stolen labor. We kidnapped well-developed cultural communities and they had knowledge. They had skills that they learned from their ancestors. And I like here to use the American agricultural example, because we know that that stolen labor, right? They worked in cotton fields and tobacco fields. And we often forget that some of the most cherished sustainable farming practices that we have today have roots in African wisdom. And when they were kidnapped and brought here to do farm work, their knowledge was acquired by white American farmers
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So when we look at it that way, that knowledge was also stolen and appropriated. That also is not just African and African American, but also indigenous knowledges. Right. So I'd love to use that example just because I think it puts into context, again, as you were saying, that these were people that had knowledge and skills and more than just the identity that was forced upon them as being enslaved.
1: Brie, I'm so glad that you bring that up around the knowledge because as I think back about my understanding of slavery, so often what I think of is the stolen labor. I think mm-hmm. of being ripped from your home and your families being mm-hmm. separated and all of those things and the, you know, the backbreaking work. But you're right. There's so much knowledge that they were never given credit for that was basically yeah. taken from them. And I think, I mean, certainly there's a lot of language around that, but I also think for me that a lot of it is imagery, you know. I mm-hmm. think of slavery as happening in fields, but I don't think of it as happening in sort of these knowledge centers where um, the planning was happening and all of those sorts of yeah. things. And I think that's a good example of how language is influenced by imagery. And so I would love next time to dig further into that. How is imagery impacting the way that we we view people and view history? and, and yeah. our own
0: personal biases. Yes, I think we could have a whole episode just on the imagery, and I think it connects really well to this conversation around language. Bree, thanks so much for sharing this brave space with me today. We are learning so much from others that on each episode, we want to feature a thought leader or a resource that is impactful to us. This episode's featured follow is The Conscious Kid, They are an education, research, and policy organization dedicated to equity and promoting healthy racial identity development in youth. They support organizations, families, and educators in taking action to disrupt racism in young children. You can follow them at The Conscious Kid on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or check out their website at theconsciouskid.org. After listening to this episode, whether you're on your own or with your work teams, family or friends, we'd like to leave you with something to ponder. What words do you use that you can eliminate or use differently to create a more inclusive climate? How will you listen and speak differently this week? As we embark on this journey of unlearning, we are so thankful that you're here. We are excited to continue unpacking this conversation around race equity and intersectionality together. Stay connected with us. Visit our website at lunchandunlearn.com and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at lunch and unlearn and Facebook at lunch and unlearn. We hope you'll grab lunch with us again and join us for more brave conversations next time.